0: Well, welcome to you all this evening, uh, and a special welcome to Professor Nicholas Rose, who will deliver tonight uh, the second lecture of the Psychology and Social Science Public Lecture Series. Uh, before I introduce Professor Rose, let me say a few words about the series. And, by the way, I'm not Derek Hook, as it should be. I'm Sandra Jovchelovich, and I'm covering for my colleague who is teaching at the moment and should be shortly here. Uh, Psychology as a Social Science is a program of public lectures on the interconnections between psychology and the social sciences. Uh, Hosted by the Institute of Social Psychology here at the school and generously supported by the LSE Deputy Director's Discretionary Fund, the lectures aim to discuss and enhance the position of psychology within the social sciences, Uh, It seeks to call attention to the potential and the necessity of integration psychology and its manifold disciplinary traditions in the larger intellectual program uh, of the social sciences. The series will bring together both psychologists and other social scientists from a variety of disciplines to reflect on how our disciplinary traditions have engaged with the social sciences and address topics that are central to both. It will also emphasize the past, the present, and the future of psychology in the school, where from the mid 20th century onwards, the project and the vision of a societal psychology took shape. This year's lectures are very impressive and signal well to the future of the series. We started last November with Professor Michael Billig and following on tonight's lecture, we'll have in May Professor Michael Cole, uh, one of the most distinguished cultural psychologists in the world is speaking on the potential of a cultural and historical psychology. And in June, Professor Axel Honeth, director of the Frankfurt Institute for Social Research uh, will be speaking on Freud's concept of the self and its relation to the freedom of the will. Professor Honneth uh, is the scholar who today perhaps best represents the traditions of the Frankfurt School and its emphasis on the links between psychology, philosophy and the social sciences. Highlights for the next academic session include Professor Michael Tomasello and Professor Bruno Latour. So watch the space and keep an eye on the school website where uh, all the information is. Now let me say a few words about our speaker tonight, although he probably doesn't need any introduction. Our very own Nicholas Rose, James Martin White Professor of Sociology here at the school and Director of the LSE Bio Center for the Study of Bioscience, Biomedicine, Biotechnology and Society. Professor Rose is one of the world's leading sociologists, a keen interpreter and developer of Michael Foucault's overall project, and the sociology who, perhaps more than anyone else, defined the social and historical undercurrents of psychology as a discipline and as a set of practices. Unrelentingly, and obviously unrepentantly, he exposed the theories the codes of practice, the dispositives, as he would call, that made psychology and created what we can call a Psi space. Through books, such as The Psychological Complex, Governing the Soul, and Inventing Ourselves, he gave us the opportunity to understand more and to understand better the nature of psychology and its social interventions. His current work, is towards the life sciences and his book, The Politics of Life Itself, is out now with Princeton University Press. We are tremendously honored. He is contributing to the series and delivering tonight's lecture on psychology and social science. Please join me in giving him a very warm welcome.
1: Well, uh, thanks very much uh, to Dr. Jovchalovich for inviting me to give this paper, or shall I say persuading me to give this paper. Uh, I was happily on my uh, sabbatical leave working on something completely different, uh, but I welcome this chance to um, take a trip down memory lane and revisit some of the arguments that I made, uh, unfortunately for me, uh, about 20 years ago today. Uh, about a particular way in which one might think of psychology as a social science. Now, the 20th century was certainly the century of psychology as a social science, the century of psychology. Will the 21st century be the same? What do I mean by saying that the 20th century was the century of psychology? Not just that it was the century when psychology became a discipline, with university departments, professorships, degrees, qualifications, and all that stuff, nor just that it was the century in which psychology uh, took off as a profession with professional bodies, qualifications, employment for psychologists, and so much more, which many of you here, I'm sure, are hoping to to traverse into after your period at the LSE. But more, I think, uh, the 20th century was the century of, of psychology, Because psychology across the 20th century helped make up the kind of society that we inhabited and indeed the kind of people that we've become. The development of psychology across the 20th century had a major social impact on our understanding and treatment of distress, on our conceptions of normality and abnormality, on our technologies of regulation, normalization, reformation and correction, on child rearing and education, on advertising, marketing and consumption technologies and on the management of human behavior from the factory to the military. Psychology and psychological languages entered common sense across Europe and North America, in Australasia, in Latin America and in many other countries. Psychological training affected professionals from child guidance and social work to human resource management. And in the process, our very ideas of ourselves, of identity, autonomy, freedom, and self-fulfillment became reshaped in psychological terms. Human beings, at least in the region that I've termed advanced liberal societies, human beings in these regions came to understand themselves as inhabited by a deep interior psychological space to evaluate themselves and to act upon themselves in terms of this belief. They came to speak of themselves in a psychological language of self-description, the language of intelligence, personality, anxiety, neurosis, depression, trauma, extroversion, introversion, and to judge themselves in terms of what I think one might quite accurately call a psychological ethics. This wasn't just a process of individualization. It also involved the psychologisation of collective life, the invention of the idea of the group, large and small, of attitudes, of public opinion and the like. Practices from the factory to the army would now be understood in terms of the psychodynamics of interpersonal relations and social problems from prejudice and warfare to criminality and poverty would be analysed in psychological terms. Now, as I say, this wasn't just a matter of psychology establishing itself as a discipline or as a body of professionals. There's a characteristic way of thinking about professions in the social sciences as monopolizing disciplines, as disciplines that try and exert their autonomy as professions, try and keep control of their techniques. But psychology wasn't like that. Psychology was a very generous discipline, it gave itself away to all kinds of professionals, from the police to military commanders, on condition that they came to think and act, at least in some way, like psychologists. As we enter the 21st century, then, we might want to reflect on this process. Perhaps, just perhaps, the self-evidence of psychology as the way of understanding and managing all these issues is on the wane. Perhaps this deep psychological space that opened up within us is beginning to flatten out as our discontents are mapped directly on the brain. So will the 21st century be the century of psychology? That's what I'm asking in my current research. But here, as I say, to some extent nostalgically, I just want to return to some arguments that I made about psychology some 20 years ago and I'll be interested to see if you think they still stand up. How should we do the history of psychology? Well, I started off reading some histories of psychology, although I didn't start off reading psychology at university. And every student of psychology knows the story. Psychology, I quote Edwin Boring, whose book on the history of psychology every student was forced to read, at least in my day. Psychology, Boring said, no pun intended, psychology has a long past but a short history. A long past, Boring said, psychology is a respectable discipline because it can trace its roots back to reflections on human mental life going back to the Greeks. So those of you who study psychology are studying in a long and honorable tradition, according to Boring. But psychology, with its long past, says Boring, has a short history, and that history dates from the adoption of the empirical methodologies in the late 19th century, leading to the development of a science of human mental life and behavior. Now, this long past short history is the founding myth of the discipline of psychology, but it's fundamentally misleading because psychology wasn't formed as a discipline in the tranquil surroundings of the academy, nor was it formed in the white-coated empiricism of the laboratory and the experiment. Actually, as you may already have gathered from my hints, psychology began to form in all those practical locales across across the 19th century, where problems of human, individual, and collective conduct were of concern to authorities who sought to govern them. I've mentioned them, the factory, the prison, the army, the schoolroom, the courtroom, and much more. Psychology formed as a way of understanding individuals and understanding groups in order to make those individuals and groups manageable. (coughs) Excuse me. And the vectors of its development did not go from the academy to the application. The very idea of applied psychology is a complete misnomer. Actually, the vectors of development went from those, quote, applications back to the university. And similarly, psychological knowledge didn't start by knowing normality and then on the basis of a knowledge of normality try and understand what was abnormal, but again, quite the reverse. The knowledge of normality, the norms of normality, were derived from an interest with abnormality, the idea of intelligence from endeavours to identify the feeble-minded, and much, much more. So if we're going to understand the history of psychology and the part it's played in our present, we've got to adopt a different perspective. What perspective? Well, initially I have claimed that psychology, in its modern form, was a technology of individualisation, Psychology began to discipline itself, if I can use that term, when it shifted its concerns from a general theory of mind, a kind of quasi-philosophy, to a practical task, the task of creating calculable minds and manageable individuals. And the problem space in which it operated was formed by the attempt to administer individuals in terms of their abilities. Now, many of you don't come from the UK, I know, so the name Cyril Burt won't be familiar to many of you. But when Cyril Burt was appointed to his post as an educational psychologist in 1913, Sir Robert Blair, no relation, I believe, then Chief Education Officer in England, pronounced Cyril Burt, quotes, the first official psychologist in the world. What was the task? of the first official psychologist in the world. An interesting one, perhaps. Not what you would think. The examination of elementary school children who were thought to be mentally defective. Now, Burt's first book of 1921, with the rather uninteresting title Mental and Scholastic Tests, begins with a parable. Let me read it to you. This is what Bert says. In the history of Rasselas, Prince of Abyssinia... It's related how a foolish barbarian once attempted to fly. He ascended an eminence, flourished his wings, sprang from the edge, and at once dropped headlong into a lake. But his pinions, it is added, which failed to sustain him through the air, sufficed to bear him up when he reached the surface of the lake. This episode was written as an allegory, says Bert, and may not inaptly typify the fate of the defective at large. In a thin and treacherous atmosphere, at the difficult and dizzy altitude where highly civilized men, uh, assisted by the newest machinery, alone should venture to soar, there the simpleton, less fortunately equipped, oblivious to his ill fortune, must crash instantly to ruin. But if he lights on a humbler medium, dense enough and yet elastic enough, more buoyant and yet less variable, he may contrive, though quite mechanically, to support himself unaided. In one milieu he falls, in the other he may float. He is there, as we say, in his element. Each to their element, then. This was Bert's noble dream, uh, perhaps recalling another, from each according to their abilities to each according to their needs. And the key for this noble dream of Cyril Burt's was the invention of the idea of the norm. The norm, the normal, the average, the statistical mean, the desirable, the healthy. All those things that are embodied when psychology began to talk about the norm. Now, of course, medicine had also talked about the norms of the body, the norms of temperature, the norms of heart rate, and so much more. But for psychologists, the norm wasn't derived from any knowledge of the organic functioning of the human mind, as in the normativity of the body, but from the normativity of institutional requirements. The norm aligned these normativities, what the institution demanded, pitching up on time, being able to do your lessons, being able to read, write, and so forth. The norms of the institution aligned these norms with the norms of statistical variation and the laws of large numbers. Norms of desirability became aligned with the demands of statistical theory. Now, my favorite philosopher and historian of medicine, George Congiem, wrote a well-known book, Um, Michel Michel Foucault's uh, uh, thesis supervisor, by the way, uh, wrote a well-known book called The Normal and the Pathological. And in that book, kahn says the following, It is life itself and not medical judgment which makes the biological normal a concept of value and not a concept of statistical reality. The biological normal for Kang is a concept of value because the, no, the normality and the normativity arise from the normativity of life itself. Life itself is normative. Hence, Canguilhme likes to quote another uh, medical philosopher, uh, La Riche Rich says, health is life in the silence of the organs. Uh, not a state which I find myself often in, but there you go. But for psychology, at least, this was what I argued in my first book, my PhD thesis, which uh, Sandra was kind enough to mention, The Psychological Complex, sold about 70 copies and then it was pulped, but I believe you can still get it at Amazon for a rather exorbitant price, I'm glad to say. Anyhow, I concluded that book by saying that for psychology, health is not life in the silence of the organs, it's life in the silence of the authorities. It's normalization without normativity. It's a theory of pathology without a theory of normality. Of course, that's too simple. Psychology actually formed as a hybrid between these administrative projects and older philosophical projects. Now in nineteen fifty-six the very same George Congiem was invited to give a lecture at the Sorbonne, and the title of that lecture uh, translated in an excellent publication called Ideology and Consciousness many years ago. The title of that lecture was, What is Psychology? <clears throat> and uh, Kong Gim, speaking at the Sorbonne, said, well, psychology is a little bit like the Sorbonne. Some of you may know the Sorbonne. If you leave the Sorbonne out of the front door, you can go two ways, says Kong Gim. One way, up the hill, will take you up to the Pantheon, in the pantheon, the wise philosophers of France are buried. If you take the downhill route, though, you end up at the police station. Bert's work was originally bound up in a socio-political concern about degeneracy, and in particular about the consequences for society of what was then called the feeble-minded. The problem with the feeble-minded was that unlike Uh, more severe defectives, as they were called in those days, the feeble-minded looked to the naked eye almost the same as normal people. And yet, within the feeble-minded lurked a terrible taint, a taint of degeneracy, of degeneration, of profligate breeding, and a threat to the very vitality of the race. The feeble-minded were part of that wider family of those with low civic worth, the syphilitic, the tubercular, the drunkards, the prostitutes, the unemployables, whose excess breeding would, in the course of a few generations, pose a threat to the overall quality of the race. Now, this isn't the place to talk about the eugenic allegiances of the early psychologists. That story has been well told. I just want to pause for a moment on the idea of the test. Psychological tests, and indeed the whole project of psych- psychology initially uh, was a project of testing. Psychological tests were initially required by those wishing to ascertain the feeble-minded. What's significant here isn't just the aspiration to differentiate, but the invention of that little technology, the test. Philip Ballard, another early British psychologist, wrote his own book on mental tests in 1920. And he said this, speaking of Alfred Binet, the original inventor of a device to identify uh, pupils in the French school system whose feeble-mindedness meant that they were incapable of learning the lessons of the school. Uh, This is Ballard talking about Binet. Binet's crowning glory, says Ballard, is not that he got together a medley of heterogeneous tests for the detection of the feeble-minded, but that he invented a scale. In this, he resembles Saul, the son of Kish, who set out to look for asses and found a kingdom. Well, let's not go into your biblical knowledge. I'm sure you can go back and look up Saul in your Bibles when you get back home. But the point that Ballard is making is in developing the idea of the test, in standardizing the test and making a scale, it wasn't just a question of detecting the feeble-minded, or, as he put it so elegantly, looking for asses, but it was the foundation of a kingdom, and that would be the kingdom that psychology would occupy. It would move from an investigative technology based on the experiment to a kind of adjudicative technology, the test. The test is a new kind of examination. It's not clinical, like a case history. It's not pedagogic, as in qualifying exams for universities or the civil service. It's designed to attach a score to an individual. And the test, uh, if I can put it this way, is one way of materialising the mind of taking that invisible internal space that psychology envisages within the individual and turning it into numbers, turning it into scales. Difference is no longer written on the surface of the body but resides in the interior. Indeed, the early attempts to ascertain, as it was called, the feeble-minded, were very, very physical. The poor children would take off all, or rather most, of their clothes and they'd parade in front of the doctor who'd look for the signs of defectiveness, of feeble-mindedness. And there were many, many people pictures in the textbooks to tell them how to do it. When the test comes along, this character of the individual moves from the surface of the body into this invisible interior. And the test is a crucial device for making the invisible visible, for making it calculable, for making it manageable, for turning it into one number. One number captures the quality of the individual. The black box of the score turns all questions of values and evaluation into technical questions about the construction, reliability, and validity of the test. So the test turns the ephemeral qualities of human individuals into single, calculable, docile objects, scores on scales, tables, graphs, which enable them to be stabilised, accumulated, normalised, tabulated, calculated, and so on, as Professor Latour uh, has shown us so elegantly in his work on science, and especially in a classic paper called Thinking with Hands and Eyes, which is on the role of inscription devices. Now, these projects for individualizing, assessing, managing, and administrating individuals spread beyond the intellect, to the personality, and, as I've already said, spread to all practices where individuals are to be managed in terms of their differences. Now, you may be tempted to think, and indeed many critics of psychology in the days when I was being a critical psychologist did think this, psychology is inhuman. Fancy turning human qualities into numbers. What we really want is a humane psychology to set against this inhuman psychology of the testing. But actually this would be a mistake because what those who had to manage individuals felt psychology was giving them was precisely a kind of human technology. What could be more human than to manage individuals in terms of their real underlying qualities? To move the defective from that medium where he... He or she could never survive to that place where he or she is in their element. And precisely because of the legitimacy that this knowledge of the individual gave to those in authority, it gave their authority a kind of legitimacy. They were no longer managing individuals in terms of arbitrary whim but in terms of a precise science of uh, of their subjects. And in the same moment, all these institutions where individuals were going to be managed, the factory, the army, and in particular the schoolroom, became little laboratories for psychology, the places where psychology would flourish. Now, some of you may have heard of the name of F.W. Taylor uh, and the mode of organization of the workplace that became known as Taylorism. Taylorism is much criticized by those who are opposed to the management of individuals in terms of scores and tests as as simply psychophysiological machines, but the thing people often forget about Taylor was that Taylor's whole project was to make authority legitimate. And knowledge of the individual would make your authority legitimate. And perhaps ever since that moment, psychology has played its part in legitimating those and perhaps no bad thing, who have to manage others. Now, the series here is called Psychology as a Social Science, and I want to argue that psychology has, however individualizing, had a social vocation right from the very start. Of course, it had a social vocation in the era of degeneracy and eugenics when it was performing what it thought was a vital social role. But I think also in the post-eugenic era, in giving authority legitimacy, it's played its part in making up our society. Here's Bert again. Like so many advances in theoretical science, the annexation of this new field of individual psychology may be traced to the press of practical needs. The psychology of education, of industry, of war, of the criminal, the defective and the insane all depend for their development on a sound analysis of individual differences. And the investigation of the more practical problems has already begun to pay back its debt by furnishing fresh data of the utmost value to the mother science. And so at least we have the birth, at last, we have the birth of the youngest member in the list of sciences, the psychology of the individual. It aims at almost mathematical precision and proposes nothing less than the measurement of mental powers. Actually, they wrote rather interesting psychology books in those days. They're They're less interesting these days. It's this link between individualism and psychology that often is thought to be the key to the role that psychology has in modern political culture. And it certainly was as a science of individuals, as a technology of individualism, that psychology first began to discipline, disciplinize itself. It would find its place, as I've already said, in all those practices where individuals were to be administered, not in the light of arbitrary power, but on the basis of judgments of objectivity, neutrality, and effectivity. But there's another sense in which psychology was a social science because in the period before, during, and after the Second World War, psychology would address itself to collective processes, to the processes inherent in human collectivities, large and small. And in the same way as when it addressed itself to the individual, it would try to render these collective processes thinkable and to administer individuals in the light of them. In this in large sense, then psychology would become a truly social science, and I just want to take two examples here. Uh, the first is democracy and the second is the group. The social psychology that was written in the 1930s, 40s and 50s makes frequent references to democracy. Gordon Allport's classic article on the historical background of modern social psychology in the first edition of the Handbook of Social Psychology in 1954 asserts, quote, the roots of modern social psychology lie in the distinctive soil of Western thought and civilization and suggests that social psychology requires what he calls the rich blend of natural and biological sciences, the tradition of free inquiry, and, quote, a philosophy and ethics of democracy. Lewin, Lippitt, and White, who carried out famous studies of leadership from 1938 to 1942 at the Iowa Child Welfare Research Station, an interesting name in itself, a Child Welfare Research Station, but there you go. What Lewin, Lippitt, and White sought to do is to demonstrate differences between experimentally created groups with a democratic atmosphere and those that were authoritarian or laissez-faire, and the difference they found was always to the advantage of democracy. George Gallup and S.F. Ray entitled their first book on public opinion polling, which was published in 1940, The Pulse of Democracy, and argued, quote, in a democratic society, the views of the majority must be regarded as the ultimate tribunal for social and political issues. J.A.C. Brown, in his much reprinted textbook, The Social Psychology of Industry, which was first published in 1954, says an awful lot about democracy, and he concludes, quote, a genuine industrial democracy can only be based on the intelligent cooperation of primary work groups with responsibly minded management. Now, what should we make of all this discussion of democracy? Is it just rhetoric? No, I don't think it is. To rule citizens democratically means ruling them through their relations with one another, knowing and shaping those relations in line with a conception of how they function, aligning government with the social dynamics of those who are to be governed. Indeed, Allport quotes Jean-Baptiste Vico. At the opening of his his historical review of social psychology, quote, government must conform to the nature of the men governed. And again, sticking with Allport, he says. The First World War, followed by the spread of communism, by the Great Depression of the 1930s, by the rise of Hitler, genocide of the Jews, race riots, the Second World War, the atomic threat, stimulated all branches of social science. A special challenge fell to social psychology. The question was asked, how is it possible to preserve the values of freedom and individual rights under conditions of mounting strain and regimentation? Can science provide an answer? This challenging question led to a burst of creative effort that added much to our understanding of leadership, public opinion, rumor, propaganda, prejudice, attitude change, morale, communication, decision making, race relations, and conflicts of value. Close quote. Social psychology was to provide a way of understanding all these problems that troubled a democracy. It was to evaluate the ways in which one could resolve them in democratic ways. It was to provide the means of developing techniques to resolve those problems. Techniques that, on the one hand, were in accord with scientific knowledge and, on the other hand, accorded with the democratic values of Western liberal pluralistic society. Now, attitudes were the first key to this. The development of the science of attitudes exemplifies the way problems of governing get reframed in terms of the language of social psychology and the way in which that makes them amenable to kind of expert solutions. Perhaps we should first look here to a classic book called The Polish Peasant, written by W.I. Thomas and Florian Znaniecki in 1918. Some social scientists amongst you might know W.I. Thomas for his famous quote, if a person defines a situation to be true, then that situation is true for that person. Anyhow, the Polish peasant was concerned with the vast movements of Poles, uh, especially uh, uh, in the post-First World War period, and what was thought to be the major disorganizations that were generated by these uh, movements. Social science, Thomas and Zaniecki said, needs to respond to this disorganisation through helping develop techniques of rational control based on a knowledge that would provide the basis of what they themselves called a quote social technology' a social technology to apply the knowledge accumulated by social scientists to practical situations. They say since it's theoretically possible to find out what social influences should be applied to certain already existing attitudes in order to produce new attitudes... And what attitudes should be developed with regard to existing social values to make the individual group produce new values, there's not a single phenomenon within the whole sphere of human life that conscious control cannot reach sooner or later. By 1918, attitudes have become a key kind of transactional space for thinking about and acting on the problems of the group It wasn't until 1928 that Thurstone was to proclaim rather proudly that, quote, attitudes can be measured and to inaugurate a whole series of inventions to make this subjective feature of human life objective, to make the invisible visible, to make the intersubjective calculable, to enable each individual to be placed on an attitude scale so that they could be compared with others. Attitudes, says uh, Thurstone. Attitudes, sorry, says Allport, were not anemic. They were imbued with vitality, with longing, with hatred, with love, and with passion. For the explanation of prejudice, loyalty, patriotism, crowd behavior, controlled by propaganda, no anemic conception of attitudes will suffice. Now, this conception of attitudes was to resonate with the politics of American society in the early decades of this century that placed great faith in the rational management of all areas of social life by competent, dispassionate scientific engineers, administrators, and managers. Progressive reform in this period addressed threats posed to democratic ideals by corrupt municipal administration, by the concentration of unaccountable power in the large corporation and in the financial sector. Social scientific knowledge was one contributor to try and make these threats to democracy manageable with its claims to objectivity, rationality, professionalism and neutrality. It would reconcile the goals of administrative efficiency with those of democracy. Authority wouldn't be exercised through arbitrary whim or through partisan interest, but on the basis of scientific exactitude. Many, many locales in the intersubjective world were to be mapped out through this notion of attitudes, attitudes of hotel and restaurant proprietors to the Chinese, attitudes of college students to Negroes, Jews, and cheating, attitudes of employees to jobs, bosses, and much else. By the outbreak of the Second World War, the technology of attitudes was poised to fulfill the promise of a rational social technique, and one in accordance with the values of democracy, for which the war was fought. Attitudes could not only be known, but the key thing about attitudes was once known, attitudes could be subject to a kind of rational control. And the idea of attitudes was also key to the invention of public opinion, feeling the pulse of democracy, as George Gallup put it. Now, the public was not always thought to have an opinion And certainly not one to listen to. If you go back and read the early 20th century debates on democracy in the United States, they were full of worries, actually, worries not foreign to early sociology and social psychology worries about the crowd, about the mass, about the dangers of uninformed public opinion to democracy itself. But gradually, a different argument prevailed that public opinion was somehow vital to a democracy but it mustn't be the uninformed assumptions of politicians about what the public thought or the unrepresentative claims of pressure groups. How was the real opinion of the public to be known? And it was in the 1930s that the value of large systematic sampling of opinions was demonstrated and the science of opinion polling validated. The first issue of Public Opinion Quarterly, uh, which was edited by Floyd Allport, says uh, public opinion has nothing to do with the old fallacies of collective minds. It's the sum of individual opinions about particular issues or persons. And for Gallup, the public opinion poll provided a crucial two-way connection between citizens and their representatives for a democracy. Now, this isn't the time or the place to explore in detail the way in which the measurement and management of morale and opinion became crucial in the Second World War. The morale of the enemy, the morale on the home front, the means means of attacking the morale of the enemy by all manner of psychological warfare techniques and the means of sustaining the morale of your own population through propaganda and the like. A whole host of studies and books were to follow developing theories of propaganda, rumor, attitude, change, and so on. The public mind had now become a domain accessible to knowledge, to calculation, and to government. And that was to be crucial to the government of democracies in the post-war years. Now, you could probably argue, I'm sure many of you will, that this is just the use of novel techniques to find out something that's always been there Attitude, opinions, public opinion, etc. But I would disagree. And perhaps this is the crux of my argument. The social sciences, including psychology and social psychology, actually create phenomena. They bring into existence new domains to be known, new domains to be managed, and they change the way in which individuals understand and relate to themselves. Citizens now have attitudes to all manner of things. They take decisions about their lives in terms of such attitudes. They discuss them with others. They justify them. They have them measured, and they have them changed. And citizens, too, have opinions who in this room wouldn't know what to do if they were confronted by an opinion polar. A hundred years ago, or perhaps in the Soviet Union up until quite recently, you would not have known how to answer those questions about what your opinion was on everything from Shilpa Shetty to whether Tony Blair should resign. I have time for just one more brief example. The group... Of course, again, you'll say human beings have always cooperated with one another in groups large and small. But actually, it was only in the 1930s that the group was discovered as a field to be known, to be charted, and to be administered. And if I can be forgiven for quoting myself uh, some 20 years ago, the group from that moment on would exist as an intermediary between the individual and the population, it would inhabit the soulless world of the organization and give it subjective meaning for the employee. It would satisfy the social need of the atomic and fragmented self, isolated with the rise of the division of labor and the decline of community. It would explain all manner of ills and could be mobilized for good. It could bring about damage in its totalitarian form and contentment and efficiency in its democratic form. In the medium of the group, a new relay was found where administration, in the light of psychological expertise, could come into alignment with the values of democracy. Now, the group was first discovered in the factory, and indeed the factory and the workplace have been key sites for the formation of individual and collective subjectivities. In the 1930s, one can see a shift from the focus on the individual worker in the factory and his or her adjustment or maladjustment mental hygiene, efficient allocation of manpower, selection vocational guidance, the treatment of individual psychoneuroses a shift away from all that to the collective relations of the working group. Most famous here known to every student of psychology were Elton Mayer's studies of the Hawthorne works of the Western Electric Company between 1923 and 1932 excuse me for Hawthorne, what was significant was neither the objective characteristics of the labour process. Excuse me. Don't go on sabbatical, you just get sick. Um, <laughs> But Mayo, what was significant was neither the objective exigencies of the labor process, light, hours of work, and so on, nor even the maladjustments of individual workers, but the human relations of the enterprise, the group life which made it up. Production, efficiency, and contentment were now understood in terms of attitudes of workers to their work, feelings of workers about control over their work, their sense of cohesion within their small working group, their beliefs about the concern and understanding that the bosses had for their individual worth and their personal problems. The subjective features of... Uh, collective life were to be known by means of the interview. And the Hawthorne uh, researchers, let this be a lesson to all of us, carried out some 20,000 of these interviews. But as they looked at these interviews, they found that these interviews didn't do what they wanted to do initially, which was to provide objective information about the workplace, but they were ways into the emotional life of the factory. Enabling the researchers to interpret the psychological form of complaints, to see their complaints of the workers as symptoms of social situations that needed to be understood and managed to create organisational harmony. Communication, counselling and much else were techniques through which management could create the internal harmony through which uh, a happy and productive factory could be generated human interactions, feelings and thoughts, psychological relations of the individual to the group, this became a new domain for management. Now, there were many other pathways at about the same time which led to the discovery of the group. Uh, Muzaffar Sharif found group norms in his study of group relations in the famous robber's cave experiment conducted in the Boy Scouts of America camp in Oklahoma. He discovered how group relations amongst these different groups that he'd created artificially could be manipulated to generate hostility between these groups. Here, the group appeared as a site of considerable potential danger. Kurt Levine discovered a more virtuous group in his experimental applications of field theory, and he sought to show that the values of democracy could be given a scientific basis, and the superiority of democracy over all other ways of exercising authority could be generated, could be demonstrated in an experimental setting. Democracy, for Levine, could not only prove to be advantageous, it could also be taught. Uh, uh, Levine, together with Bavalas, described, quote, a rapid retraining of mediocre leaders into efficient democratic leaders. And the advantage of this was it didn't only make group leaders more sensitivity to the possibilities of leadership, at the same moment they felt, quote, they felt keenly their own greater calm and poise after they discovered that group discipline no longer depended on their constant vigilance. In the post-war period, this discovery of the group as a method of training was to be institutionalized in in the National Training Laboratories in Group Development that Levine would inaugurate in 1947. It appeared that training individuals as better leaders also made them feel better persons, that one could fulfill oneself as a person in the very same moment as one became a more efficient manager and a more democratic leader. Now, some of the work that I carried out on these uh, issues um, was based uh, in my role as the quasi-official historian of uh, two rather influential institutions, the Tavistock Clinic and the Tavistock Institute of Human Relations. The Tavistock Enterprise uh, was a sort of British version of what was going on in the United States, And in the Tavistock, which had been very heavily involved in military psychiatry during the Second World War, uh, The Tavistock drew very heavily on the discovery of the group in the convalescent hospitals and military hospitals uh, set up in the Second World War, in particular by Tom Main, who went on to found the Castle Hospital, and by Maxwell Jones, who founded the original therapeutic communities, but perhaps most notably by Wilfred Bion, whose book Experiences in Groups became the founding text for a new way of forcing the dynamics of group interaction into the awareness of participants. Bion invented what was called the leaderless group. In the leaderless group, people sit around in a group without a leader, or rather the role of the leader is to interpret to those who are sitting around in this group the kinds of reactions and responses that they have to this unled uh, group situation. And in participating themselves, experiencing themselves, the dangerous and often damaging dynamics of the group, in interpreting their own role and that role of others, and in participating in that process, again, those individuals themselves would become at one and the same time better at their jobs, whatever they were, and better at understanding themselves. The leaderless group became a very powerful method of training in large and small groups. It became a method of therapy uh, in psychiatric hospitals throughout the country. It became a method of conceptualizing problems at work Reforming authority structures of the workplace, uh, and in the work of Eric Trist, Elliot Jacks, and many others, ways of addressing the issues of productivity in industry, ranging from the Tennessee Valley Authority in the United States to uh, to Unilever in the UK. Groups were everywhere. In 1967, coming to the end now, Darwin Cartwright and Alvin Zander could still preface the third. Edition of their comprehensive account of group dynamics, research and theory, with an explicit reference to democracy. A democratic society derives its strength from the effective functioning of the multitude of groups it contains. Its most valuable resources are the groups of people found in its homes, communities, schools, churches, business concerns, union halls and various branches of government. Now more than ever is it recognized that these units must perform their functions well if the larger systems are to work successfully. But in 1967, the heyday of the group was perhaps almost over, for a new relationship was taking shape between the problems of so many different practices, the aspirations of of government, the subjectivity of individuals, and the experts of psychology. And that was best summed up in one word, which became so famous for all of us in the 1980s, and that word was enterprise. Across the 1980s, this new presupposition of the autonomous choosing free self, a kind of entrepreneur of himself, as a value, as an ideal, as an objective, underpinning and legitimating political uh, activity, was central to the political mentalities in the United Kingdom, the United States, and even some of old Europe, as well as those that began to sweep across what used to be termed Eastern Europe after 1989. Almost all the ills of the past were put down to a lack of enterprise and almost all the solutions to those ills were to be met by increasing enterprise. Enterprise links up a seductive ethics of the self, a powerful critique of contemporary institutional political reality and an apparently coherent design for the radical transformation of contemporary social arrangements. In the writings of neoliberals like Hayek and Friedman, the well-being of both political and social existence is to be ensured not by centralized planning, not by bureaucracy, but through the enterprising activities of and choices of autonomous entities whether they're businesses, whether they're organisations and whether they're persons all striving to maximise their own advantage by inventing and promoting new projects by means of individual and local calculations of their strategies and tactics now the forms of political reason that yearned for an enterprise culture gave a vital political value to a certain image of the self And this idea of the enterprising self was potent because it wasn't just a possession of the right, but it resonated with very widely distributed presuppositions about the nature of selves, embodied in the very language that we use to make persons thinkable, our very ideals about what individuals should be. And its power was that it didn't only designate a kind of organizational form, individual units competing with one another on the market, but more generally provided an image of a mode of activity which was to be encouraged in the university, in the hospital, in the GP's surgery and elsewhere. As I've said, organisations were problematised in terms of their lack of enterprise and they were to be reformed by giving enterprise a kind of technical form by experts of organisational life who would re-engineer the organization, re-engineer the workplace to come and to make some kind of alignment between the aspirations of managers... For a good workplace, the aspirations of owners for profit and the aspirations of individuals to fulfill themselves through the very life themselves. Enterprise is a a very good example of the way in which a political rhetoric and a regulatory program can be linked to the self-steering, the ethical self-steering capacities of subjects themselves. The enterprising self who wants to make a venture of its life project itself a future and seek to shape itself in order to become what it wants to be. So this is a form of rule enterprise that was and perhaps is essentially ethical. Good government is to be grounded in the way in which people govern themselves. All right, well, I ought to move to an end. I think I've probably given you enough hints of the way in which I approach these issues, but perhaps you'll be left with one question, maybe more is what I'm suggesting a critique of psychology. No, it's not actually my intention here to develop a critique of psychology. I don't want to claim psychology is corrupt, that it's a servant of power, a part of strategies of domination or exploitation. Nor, as so many critics of psychology have done across the years, would I want to replace one kind of psychology, this one, with another kind of psychology, a truer psychology, a more humane psychology, a more scientific psychology, one even more accord with the real nature of human beings. That wish is the wish that's always driven the reform of psychology itself. All I want to do, all I've tried to do, is to point to the relationship that exists between the ways in which we understand ourselves conceptually, the ways in which we manage ourselves practically, the ways in which we work on ourselves ethically and the crucial role that psychological languages, psychological techniques and psychological experts have played in the making up of our present. Now as we enter the 21st century, it's relevant to ask whether this century will still be the century of psychology, the century of psi. And I have suggested elsewhere that perhaps this deep psychological space the space within which psychology operates, the deep interior that inhabits each of us, the repository of our life history, the seat of our desires, the locus of our pleasures and our frustrations, the target of knowledge, the target of management, the basis of our ethics, that this deep space is beginning to flatten out, that new and direct relations are being established between the way in which we think, feel, and desire between our normality and our pathology and our brains. Brains now understood as fleshly organs, as organs to be anatomized and understood at the molecular level. If you read some of the neurobiologists as I do, they proudly proclaim that the Cartesian dualism has been overcome. Mind is just what brain does. And the brain has been reborn as the repository of all that that was once allocated to the psyche. So are we going to see the waning of psychology or its transformation? Perhaps only the shallow psychology of cognitive behavioral therapies will prove to be capable of being aligned with this new image of ourselves in terms of our brain. Or will psychology be more durable? Is it somehow necessary to be psychological in an age of the intensification of desire and the management of our affects and our emotions. Well, we're in the middle of a potential transformation and it's too early to tell. But one thing I think would be certain, which is that if psychology is replaced by neurobiology as the principal way of understanding human conduct, that in order for neurobiology to take its place the place opened up by psychology in our systems of regulation, in our ethics, and in our ways of understanding ourselves, then neurobiology too will, in a paradoxical way, have to become a social science. Um, And perhaps the ESRC's new program on social neuroscience is a little bit of a pointer of the way in which we might go. But I'll stop at that point. Thank you for your attention.
0: just wait for a few minutes to see if people... Nick has very kindly um, accepted to take some questions, so um, any questions, any contributions from the floor are welcome. Is there a question there? Can you please...
1: So uh,
2: yeah, uh, yes, yes. Uh, Nicola Guillaume, um, Department of Sociology. Um, I, th- I think you, you gave us a very compelling account of the importance of psychology uh, in our contemporary world, but I think the account was so compelling that I was left wondering where the boundaries of psychology led, really. And I had the impression that it was very encompassing. And in particular, I was wondering, uh, I, I heard an oscillation in the vocabulary you were using. I can see how uh, the language of attitudes and meaningful relation to ideas can, is, is clearly the core of psychology. But sometimes you mention the problem of calculation, which to me is the proper issue of economics, for instance. So does it mean that actually you were, you were implying or you were diluting economics in psychology? But in that case, that would extend also to Operation Research, for instance, which was a very important research program in the 40s and the 50s. And basically I was left wondering what what was left for the other social sciences in this approach to the workings of the human mind. Thanks.
1: Oh, yes, thank you. There's there's plenty left to the other social sciences. Um, I mean, some people claim that uh, and criticize social sciences for having been colonized by economics. But you might put it the other way around and look at the way in which so many social sciences have been colonized in a certain way by psychological ways of thinking. I mean, who would now, in whatever social science they were, who would now deny that human beings had attitudes, that they had opinions... Uh, that uh, they had motives uh, and that they were mobilized by this deep kind of interiority that was brought into existence by by psychology. Now, you may deny that it was brought into existence. Perhaps previously, psychology only operates in the field that was previously allocated to the soul. Um, But I think if you see the way in which that deep space has become equipped with powerful drivers... It has to be understood by experts. It has to be managed in all sorts of ways. Then you see something of the change that psychology has brought about. When I talk about calculation, I'm meaning calculation in the psychological sphere, if I just go back to Cyril Burt uh, for a moment, the principal task of Burt and all the original educational psychologists was to determine, which, was to calculate intelligence, the intellect, in order to determine which children should be allocated to which school, and within each school, which children should be allocated to which class. Uh, in the military. Massive programs of uh, of testing of intelligence and then later testing of personality, first of all to weed out those people who were thought to be too feeble-minded to participate in the war effort, Uh, later to allocate people to different tasks in the military, according first of all to their intelligence and then later to their personality. Uh, in the workplace, vocational guidance to see which tasks and which roles were most appropriate to which individuals, the idea of rationally fitting the individual to the task. These were all tasks, and uh, those of you who are psychologists uh, won't need me to go through any more. These were all tasks that psychologists undertook. Uh, Perhaps my first um, encounter with uh, this peculiar characteristic of psychology uh, was um, when I was a student uh, and uh, as part of my training as a student I did something uh, called abnormal psychology and I went along this was at Sussex University and I went along to the uh, local psychiatric hospital uh, and we had the patients demonstrated to us um, the patients here where I am we sitting there where you are of course the, Vision reversed in those demonstrations, but we do also go and see the psychology department and I asked rather naively what role psychologists had in psychiatric hospitals. Their role was entirely a role of testing. The psychologist was a tester for the first half century of the... The actual official psychologist was a tester. So that's what I meant by calculation. That was the vocation of psychology. It was to render the invisible visible. It was to enable you to calculate about it, enable you yourself to understand yourself in terms of your personality, how much were you extroverted, how much were you introverted. Um, You could buy Isaac's little book and he'd uh, tell you how to assess that and to uh, make decisions about people in the light of that knowledge. And why I say this is not a critique is because, and I can't stress this enough, the the psychologists who were involved in this were neither fools nor knaves. They believed in their tests and they believed that rational planning of individuals, rational allocation of individuals should be done in the light of a knowledge of those who were to be allocated. As uh, Allport says, quoting Weicker, uh, government should be exercised in the light of a knowledge of those to be governed. Is that an ignoble dream? Not sh- I'm not so sure.
0: Martin Ball.
3: Uh, a very, very fascinating account, but I wonder whether the title should have been Psychology as a Social Technology. And I remember that there was a, a distinction in the 1930s psychotechnics a distinction between subjective and objective and that was somehow related to a, a discipline called differential psychology and i remember it from, the, from having read about it i wasn't around at the time there's a distinction between differential psychology and and general psychology uh, in the textbooks but that i think is not part of the anglo-saxon tradition but more on the on the old <laughs> the old continent and i wonder whether your account actually is a, is a, is a very fascinating account of the of the the pragmatics of differential social psychology, the differential psychology of being a tool of solu- for the solution of social problems. But I wonder whether, whether, whether the, the tradition of a phenomenon of the psychological space, the experience, the phenomenology of, of, ex- of experience, of the I, uh, whether that would, would need a different account. Can I?
0: Can I add to that? Mm -hmm. Let's gather forces and resist. The
1: psychologist
0: now. (laughs) Yes, the psychologist psychologist now. now I have to say Uh, something. I think my question is not exactly the same. It doesn't go exactly in the same way as Martin's, but it relates to it. So perhaps if you can take both. Uh, I think that... Uh, Your account is is a very sobering and and certainly devastating account of the uses of psychology uh, as it became a discipline and it concentrates especially on the ways in which psychology became a technique to uh, rationalize, to discipline and if necessary to punish as we know. Now isn't there as well uh, an antinomy in the history of psychology that needs to be spotted, a contradiction, as it were, that allowed us to understand that the rationality that was expected from the dominant social sciences of the 20th century, but not only of the 20th century, but by the whole project of modernity, in fact, was in fact not there. And if there is anything that psychology has thought along its short history is that in fact the fully rational subject does not exist. It is a divided subject. It is a subject that speaks through manifold voices. It is in contradiction with itself. It makes mistakes. It starts again without paying attention to history And uh, isn't there something in psychology that helped us to see that? That would be my question to you.
1: (laughs) Sorry.
4: I just wanted to ask, okay, it's very similar to Sandra's question, Um, and to preface that by saying that I think it's to the, uh, one of the crucial and most fundamentally important things about the Foucauldian project, to my mind at least, is this profoundly, um, that it emphasizes the profoundly historical nature of things like sexuality in the body. Um, It emphasizes how they produce discursively, how they become institutionalized, how they uh, become kind of woven into a certain regulatory function, and indeed how certain phenomena seem to be created from this point on. So no argument with that. But the question I've got about uh, the kind of genealogical project in this respect is are all of these things, whether it's the body or sexuality or a kind of psychology, Are they all subject to a rule of absolute historicization? Is something not left out? And the reason that I say that is because if we think about certain kinds of problematics or certain issues, um, whether it's the case of the body, whether it's the case of sexuality, or kind of uh, psychological functioning, are these not crucial anchoring points that power needs to start its functioning in a way? such that then we need to ask ourselves whether something like rudimentary cognitive functioning, memory, consciousness itself, self-awareness, these kinds of mechanisms of subjectivity, aren't they crucial for power to function? And if that's the case, then don't we need to do two things? Not only a genealogical project and a genealogical excavation, indeed, of psychology itself, but also a questioning of what are those kinds of psychological notions which can help us further the analytics of power. So, essentially... Can we do an adequate um, analysis of power without the utility of some of those psychological concepts? And surely we need something like a psychopolitical register to do critique, um, and that we can't actually do without those things that genealogy seems to want to merely historicize and do a critique of.
1: Right. How how long (laughs) have we got? How long have we got? Um, I began by asking what enabled psychology to form as a discipline? What enabled it to construct itself as a positive science of individuals? Psychology has been considering, Martin, your other side, for many centuries. It was around this project of administration that it managed to get its toehold. And as I said, quoting Kangiem, Of course, around, once it got its toehold, those other forms of investigation organized themselves around this. It's not been part of what I'm attempting to do, to do a total history of psychology, but to ask that question, how did psychology gain its toehold uh, within the institutions? How did it turn itself into something like a science? And how did it... Uh, acquire the power that it has within practices of organization and administration? That's a specific kind of question. Um, Binet is a very, very good example here, and if we had some time, more time, we could think about Binet, because Binet had been trying, using various phenomenological and other techniques, to understand intelligence for a decade. And he's given up He tried to invent tests of what he was thinking of intelligence and he'd given up the possibility. He'd said this is too complex a phenomena. There can be no such thing as a general knowledge of the individual because each individual is alone. Each individual is unique. We cannot have a science of the individual. Did he create a new way of thinking about intelligence? No. He was asked by the French government to assist them because in the citizenship rules of the French government, when universal education was introduced, there were some sad kids who did not seem to be able to learn the lessons of the school. And so he invented a device to identify those kids. That became intelligence. Everything else lost by the wayside. So, of course, there's something else to this. Of course, there's something else to the history of psychology. I've been concerned specifically with with what made psychology discipline and what turned it into a kind of technology. That's absolutely true. But it also has to be said that all the critiques that were made of psychology along the lines of my dear colleague Sandra here, all the techniques that were made of psychology, all the critiques that were made of this inhuman restrictive psychology that didn't recognise how human beings were split, how they exceeded, how they were contradictory, and so on. That those those aspirations, those beliefs, were not somehow amenable, were not somehow resistant to turning psychology into a kind of social technology. There's a there's a kind of myth, I think, especially for those who are interested in psychoanalysis. There's a kind of myth that somehow um, psychoanalysis was excluded, was, uh, was somehow recuperated. But actually, in the child guidance clinics, in the clinics that began to develop across the 20th century, and certainly in the development of American psychology, psychoanalysis in a certain form was included. It became central to a different way of managing human dissatisfactions, human distress, human passions, human affects, human perversions. It turned itself also into a kind of technical, technical expertise. It was fashionable when I started being a radical psychologist. We all read Jacques Lacan, you know, and the, all these criticisms about, friend, about American ego psychology. There was this big claim that somehow outside this world, psychoanalysis, outside this world of social technologies, existed psychoanalysis as a kind of critical, liberatory project. And my own view was that that was a myth. That was a myth, and um, that what one had to see instead was the way in which certain forms of dynamic psychology became absolutely central to what I've called this social vocation of psychology. Of course, I'm only concerned with one set of questions, one set of questions which concern me, which is the link between psychology and what I broadly called government in the sort of Foucault sense of government as the conduct of conduct. What part do these psychological knowledges play in the conduct of conduct most broadly? And there's no doubt much psychology that is not concerned with the conduct of conduct, but it's not the, that's not the thing that most people who gain their money from being psychologists get paid for, and it's not the thing that most people who use psychological knowledge use it for. Derek. Derek. <coughs> Well, first of all, I mean, is this a critique of psychology? Well, it would be uncharacteristic of me not to make many references to Michel Foucault, so I'll make just one more. Uh, Michel Foucault's great book called uh, The Birth of the Clinic is uh, prefaced by the preface that he wrote to the English reader, and at the end of that preface, he says, um, uh, I just think I'd better make one thing clear. This book, which is about the birth of the clinical gaze, is not a critique of medicine. It's not an argument that we should do away with one sort of medicine in favor of another sort of medicine, or that we should do away with medicine altogether and have something which is not medicine. It's just an analysis, just an analysis of how that which we've called medicine came into existence, what the conditions were for it coming into existence, and what its consequences were. And somewhere else, Foucault says something, well, these kinds of projects should really only trouble people who have a bad conscience. If psychology has a bad conscience, then it will be troubled by this. If it had a good conscience, it wouldn't be troubled. So I don't think it is a critique. Maybe there is another project which asks the question that you want, do we not need some kind of conception of what human beings are in order to mount a criticism of the forms of power that subvert, dominate them, and so on and so forth. Um, And that's a perfectly plausible position to take, but it's one that troubles me, because in a sense it requires you to take a position outside history, to have a counter-psychology, your own psychology, to say, well, against these false psychologists, what people are really like is this. And since that question, what are people really like, how can we know that and what consequences follow, has been the founding question of psychology. It's a bit paradoxical to use it as a founding of a critique of psychology. Now, if I was still a psychologist, I would probably want it. When, um, Sorry, this is a bit of a trip down memory lane, but um, when um, myself and a small group of us back in the... Uh, mid-1970s founded our journal Ideology and Consciousness, later called INC. Um, uh, The aspiration was for a Marxist psychology. A Marxist psychology. Do not search for the secrets of the psyche in the individual because the secrets of the psyche are not of an individual order and those kinds of things. Um, But that was a project which seemed to us to be uh, to be self-contradictory and to f- and to fail, although it has to be said that it was a, uh, a this was a controversial position, and that half of those who founded that journal did in fact split off uh, and wrote a book, well-known book called Changing the Subject, uh, which did in the end come down for a kind of psychoanalytic uh, psychology, precisely because of the reasons that uh, that you've articulated and that Sandra's also articulated, if. I had the good fortune to still be a psychologist. Maybe I would have gone down that path too. But sadly I fell amongst sociologists.
0: We have time for one more question. One here yes, uh, yes. He's going to give you a microphone. Thank
2: you very much. Um, well, as somebody um, well, I suppose coming from within the the, the discontented within psychology myself. What I'm wondering is, uh, you've given us some clues about your personal path from psychology uh, into sociology. What do you think has been the, I suppose, well, the, the, the part of sociology and the influence of sociology um socially and culturally as a sort of counterpoint to your analysis of the role and influence of psychology?
1: I mean, that's a really interesting question, which I've done a little bit of work on, and I think um, you could a- absolutely make the same kind of analysis, the same style of analysis, if I might call it that, about, uh, about sociology. Um, I mean, I mentioned very briefly the question of public opinion. Um, and uh, public opinion wasn't invented by the psychologists alone. It was one of those phenomena that was brought into existence by the social sciences more generally, including sociology. The idea of the the survey, for instance, was brought into existence by, by sociologists. The charting out of social space in order to make it manageable was also brought into existence by the sociologists. We could go back to Charles Booth, for instance, and to those early maps of the city and the way in which the work of Mayhew and, and Booth and later people like Patrick Geddes was a way of trying to make the physical space and the geographical space within which human beings lived to make that intelligible, to try and chart that out and indeed, in certain ways, to try and manage it in all sorts of strange, in all sorts of strange ways. Um, indeed, you might want to say that the very idea of the social itself that there's something called the social, social insurance, social benefits, social welfare, social rights, that this idea of the social was something that the social sciences, the nascent social sciences, helped bring into existence. The idea that there was some community of mores, of beliefs, of habits, of characteristics that mapped, as the, as the early sociologists felt, mapped upon the territory of the nation and that characterized one nation and differentiated it from another, or characterized one region in a nation and differentiated it from another. One can think of Durkheim and people like that. The invention of social right, for instance, and social insurance in, in, in France was intimately bound up with an, with an argument made by sociologists that with the growing industrialization, individualization, fragmentation, the, the solidarity of the community was beginning to fragment. How can we drag people back into some kind of community bonds through the invention of things like social right? So I think you could apply exactly the same kind of analysis to my discipline. Which is why I say that it's not necessarily a critique, although you may want to say, when um, you may want to say, and indeed I have argued this, that this idea of the social, which sociologists played a big part in inventing, is itself beginning to, to fragment. I wrote a paper, gosh, ten years ago now. Sorry, very bad form to refer to a paper that you wrote called "The Death of the Social Question Mark." When I pointed to the fact that sociologists now no longer believe in something called the social coterminous with a society. On the one hand, there are global relations, and on the other hand, there are local relations. The very idea of society is beginning to fall into disrepair. So, this is not a specific, I mean, the kind of approach is not specific to to sociology, but what it does, to psychology, what it does show, I think, is that the world we live in the things we take to be true the way in which we understand ourselves in that world owes a huge amount to the kinds of knowledges and techniques that are produced by our social sciences which to, and uh, which to some extent gives gives social scientists some kind of power and perhaps even some kind of responsibility
0: one last question there
5: Please be briefly. Okay, thanks for uh, taking my last question. Um, I, I work in Her Majesty's uh, Prison Service and have done so for a number of years. i uh, worked with over 100 psychologists, and as far as I'm concerned, um, unfortunately, psychology is failing within our prisons. The um, reason is that um, 80% of prisoners who leave prison go on to re-offending, but only 60% get caught and get reconvicted. Um, Would you suggest that the history of psychology we know, yet the future of psychology we don't? The reason why I think it's failing is because people's attitudes are changing, perhaps to a more personal, darker, even, if you like, using the word evil uh, stance. It's becoming an issue for um, people such as myself to spend so much time Energy and effort with these people to try to ensure that they do not re offend, albeit they always seem to do 80% of the time. Would you be able to suggest or clarify as to where the prison service or members of the public can go to change public opinion in such a form?
1: Um, there's a glib way of answering your question, which I'll use, but uh, it's not. then I'll try and say something a bit more sensible. Um, And the glib way of answering your question is that psychological projects have always been failing. All these attempts fail. But so often the solution to the failure of psychology is to invent a better psychology, a new psychology. So one set of critics then comes along and tries to invent something new. And perhaps, just perhaps, the rise of the neurosciences the rise of attempts to identify criminality in the genes or in the the, uh, neurochemistry of impulsive behavior or whatever. Perhaps that's a new way of trying to resolve that problem that you're talking about. Certainly, it's uh, the... It's a mode of investigation that is proving very attractive to research funders, to governments, and so on, with the rise of uh, units for severe and dangerous personality disorder and so on. This idea that instead of looking for the roots of dangerous or disordered personality in the psyche, we should look in the brain. Whether that is more likely to succeed, I don't know. Um, I mean, there's another way of answering your question, which is that. I'm aware that sometimes when I give talks like this, there's a kind of overwhelming feeling of cynicism. Okay, that I'm saying that who are psychologists? They're fools, they're knaves, they're not doing any good. Why are they involved in these situations at all? And that's absolutely not what I I believe in. Um, It's not what I believe. I, I think perhaps sometimes these kinds of investigations can help people that's not an arrogant thing to say, could help some people who are working in very constrained spaces under terrible pressures to know some of the reasons why they are placed in those situations. I work a lot with the forensic psychiatrists doing work on risk, for instance, with the rise of risk as a way of thinking, where the forensic psychiatrists are on the one and the same time know how difficult, if not impossible, it is to make a kind of scientific calculation of risk and yet are forced by all sorts of things outside their control to be engaged in risk calculations and, to be, and are in a position of working with a group of people who are the most despised people uh, that one can think of. So I have immense sympathy for for those uh, who work in those situations. Um, But I'm afraid I'm not able to offer you any positive suggestions as to ways out of it, Uh, apart from a few mundane sort of completely uninformed, uh, uninformed suggestions. I don't I don't think people are becoming more evil um I think uh, that a lot of the arguments that say we're suddenly seeing an uprise of these horrible kinds of crimes are actually not true. We may be seeing different kinds of awareness of these crimes, but we're not seeing an increase of them. So, for instance, in the area where I know, something like 50 homicides a year have been committed by people with psychiatric, uh, under psychiatric care. For the last 30 years, there has not been an increase in the number of people who are number of homicides that are committed by, by community psychiatric Patients, You're still much more likely to be killed by your spouse than you are to be killed by a psychiatric patient in the street. So I would, I would move back from broad generalizations like that. Um, uh, but as to how one might turn that kind of attitude into a, a positive program for dealing with people in these very difficult situations in which you work... Um, I I wish I had some words for you, but I'm afraid I don't.
0: Well, just before we conclude, can I say thank you very much to Nick Rose for a very uh, enlarging critique, and I think I'll resist his idea that he's not offering as a critique. He is, but I think he's offering a critique in the best tradition of what a critique should be, to allow us to reflect, to turn our thinking into our own practices, and perhaps to think about ways of developing it that can uh, question it. its own history. So thank you Nick very much for being with us tonight. Thank you all for coming.